This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Now on Philadelphia's Talk Radio 1210, WPHT. A closer look. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Recovery Radio. My name is Steve Martorano. We're here talking about substance abuse, behavioral health, and the road to recovery. It's all sponsored by Retreat Behavioral Health, and we'll have more about them later. We're going to be reminded today of something that's worth being reminded of, I guess, all the time and in many, many ways, and that is that there seems to be nothing new under the sun. And that's certainly the case with a lot of the drugs we take for granted today and unfortunately, in some cases, abuse. They have been with us for a very, very long time. Our guest is Tom Hager. Uh, Tom is an author and a historian of medicine and science, and his new book is certainly indicative of that. Tom's new book is entitled 10 Drugs, How Plants, Powders, and Pills Have Shaped the History of Medicine. These are all fascinating stories, one of which, which probably forms the core of uh, Mr. Hager's new book, is, of course, uh, those drugs that fall into the class of opioids. And we will we'll devote in the second half of the uh, of the uh, conversation with Tom uh, to a deeper look about our relationship, the history, the history of opioids, and our relationship with them. Tom Hager, welcome to Recovery Radio. Thanks for joining us from Oregon, right? From Oregon, yes, Steve. Uh, thanks for having me. Let me before you get going, is it, is it true that there's a billboard somewhere on the highway entering Oregon that says, welcome to Oregon, enjoy your stay, but 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 that don't stay? <laughs> No, pretty much it. That was that was back in the uh, in the seventies. I think we had a governor, we had a governor who uh, especially uh, wanted to tell Californians that right. uh, when they came to Oregon, they were, you know we wanted them to have a good time and, and visit and then go back to California. Yeah. And that was uh, that that sentiment has changed a little bit. We have a lot of, of new new people moving into the state. So uh, well, good. That's case I need to retreat someplace. Uh, so let's. This is just a, an incredible uh, idea for a book, and I know it's right in your bailiwick. Now, to be clear, so we get a little idea of your background. You you are a, a scientist who discovered uh, writing, not a writer who discovered science. That's correct, isn't it? That is correct. Yeah, I started out studying research science, uh, medical science, uh, and then uh, as discovered along the way that I really was bored when I was in the laboratory. It was the, the work in a lab. It's too repetitive for me. So I, uh, I turned to writing and, and uh, found that I enjoyed that, and people enjoyed reading what I was writing. So I've been a science writer for about oh, 30, 40 years now. It's a, um, it's a particular pleasure when you, when you can read something that you, you want to know more about that is highly technical or scientific or, or even uh, financial and have somebody be able to write it so a lay person can 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 appreciate it. So, um, it's a great idea. It's a, it's just a, it's a real benefit. Well, thanks. And you know, I think that's uh, that's a really important point, Steve, because the so much of the of the science writing that's out there is is done for other scientists. And I think a lot of people. My feeling is that a lot of people out there, the vast majority of people. Uh, in the in the public in America, especially, um, are kind of don't know a lot about science. They're kind of intimidated by scientific topics, or maybe they had a bad experience when they were in high school when a, a science teacher went off on some tangent. They got bored, or they didn't like math, or whatever it was. A lot of people get turned off to science. My goal 
in my writing is to try and write science because I find it you know, very interesting and important and exciting. Write about it in a way that uh, is at a language level where people who are non-scientists can, can get what I'm saying, follow the stories, and, and get involved in the history, especially, of uh, how we got the world that we live in. You know we're surrounded by science and technology. We swim in a sea of technology all day long. We don't really ever think much. Most people don't think much about how it happened, how we got the lives we've got. Science plays a role in that, so I like to write about that for the especially for those people who are science averse or, or you know, think science is boring. I, I'm trying to bring it to life. Yeah. You know, you've done a great job with this book. Um, and I've always just, I've always found that when you're confused about what's happening in the moment, if you take some time to look about look look at what happened in the past, it, it can illuminate what's going on right now. Tell us about the 10 drugs. This is like the Dick Clark top 10. Tell us about the 10 drugs and then why you chose them. Sure. Sure. You know, this, uh, this book project was a, a great opportunity for me because I've been interested, uh, because of my medical studies, I was interested in, in how drugs do what they do for a very long time. This was a chance to put a lot of what I learned into uh, a form that uh, really says something about the effect that these uh, drugs have on the practice of medicine. So that's, that's the focus of the book. I chose some drugs to illustrate uh, that history, you know, this interplay between drugs and the larger world of medicine. Um, I chose the drugs based on their importance, historically, um, but also on the basis of kind of their entertainment value. What I wanted to do was pick out drugs that had interesting stories and interesting discovery stories. You don't mean enter- uh, you, don't, you don't mean entertaining. You don't mean entertaining in their use. You mean entertaining in their story. No, yeah, I do not. I mean entertaining in their history and what they tell us about how drugs have evolved as as our society has evolved. So you know, you're looking at the evolution of science. You're looking at the at, at the evolution of drugs and and the pharmaceutical industry, and you're looking at the evolution of the practice of medicine that's brought us to where we are today. Uh, you know, today. We, we just take enormous numbers of drugs compared to anybody in history. We're, we're, uh, I make the point in the book that y- you might want to rename our, our species Homo Pharmacum because we're the only species that makes and takes drugs. And we take a lot more than we've ever taken in history. So, yeah, my estimate is the average American over a lifetime is probably popping about 50,000 pills um, including, you know, over-the-counter stuff, uh, but pharmaceuticals, you know, prescription pharmaceuticals as well. We take a lot of pills. I'm discussing in the book how we got to where we are and what those pills are doing to us. So tell us the, the top ten. What are we, ta- what are we okay. talking about? Okay, so these weren't, these weren't necessarily the top ten most important of all time because, for instance, I didn't include aspirin because aspirin's tremendously important. But there's already been several books written about it. I didn't want to rehash that stuff. And I didn't do penicillin, which is also another top ten drug. But there, I, I did an antibiotic that appeared before penicillin. So um, I, these are stories in my book that most people have never heard of, and, but they're tremendously important. Top ten uh, in, in my book include uh, three uh, opioids, three, three molecules that are related to opium. One, one chapter on opium itself and one chapter 
on the uh, development into uh, morphine and heroin, and then another chapter on the modern synthetics like fentanyl and so forth. So there's three chapters on opioids. I think opioids are, are very important in the history of medicine, very important in the history of drugs. Um, I did a chapter on smallpox inoculation, smallpox uh, uh, fighting smallpox with uh, what today we call vaccination. And I did a chapter on uh, a drug called uh, chloral hydrate. Everybody might know it better as knockout drops or a Mickey Finn. You know, this this was the first synthetic drug developed entirely in a laboratory. And I did one on uh, on sulfa drugs, which are the antibiotic that came before penicillin and, and changed the history, it saved the life of the son of the president of the United States and back in the 1930s. And one on chlorpromazine, which... Most people don't know that name, but they'll know the name Thorazine. Uh, Thorazine is the first antipsychotic. It really led to the reason that we don't have huge mental asylums anymore, because it allowed uh, patients to, to leave mental asylums and have lives outside of asylums in a lot of cases. So that was a, a huge drug, a very interesting story there. And, and uh, I did uh, a chapter on, on a combined chapter on the pill, uh, for um, birth control, the birth control pill, the one everybody calls the pill is the one one drug. When you say the pill, you're always talking right. about uh, birth control and contraception, uh, and and combine that with Viagra. Uh, these two drugs changed uh, sexual habits in and our culture in important ways. And uh, I did a chapter on statins. Statins are a very huge selling drug. They're they're one of the biggest selling drugs uh, classes in the world. Statins are drugs that people take not to necessarily cure a problem, but to prevent a problem. That's a new movement in uh, the pharma industry. So one on statins. And then uh, finally, I did a, uh, a chapter on monoclonal antibodies. Monoclonal antibodies are the new hot item right now. Six out of the top ten selling drugs in the United States are, are monoclonal antibodies. This is a new new thing just uh, developed in the last uh, 20, 30 years, really, as an industry, and, and they're going to change medicine. So I'm, I went from ancient medicine, you know, the first use of medicines, prehistory, all the way up to the most modern. You can see just from that list, particularly with regard to the pill, how uh, these first natural and then synthetic um, items not only changed medicine but they did they had a profound impact on um society they, they changed yeah, they indeed. changed us as as a civilization yeah i i think they have affected our culture in very big ways in not just the practice of medicine but our general culture the you know yeah our behavior uh, yeah our behavior and and uh, every everything um from how we deal with uh our problems to um, how we engage with people of the opposite sex, and all the way through to um, uh, how we can open up uh, educational opportunities. Uh, this, this is involved in the story of the pill. And uh, how you can really um, uh, alter the ways that you go through your everyday experience. We, drugs are involved in ways that people don't think about. Thomas Hager is our guest. Uh, Mr. Hager is the author of a brand new book called Ten Drugs, How Plants, Powders, and Pills Have Shaped the History of Medicine and, as you just heard, changed behavior where, where, wherever they have been uh, introduced. 
And we're going to take a deeper look at one of those drugs, uh, one that bears most of, certainly on what's going on today, and that, of course, is the opioids. Stay with us. This is Recovery Radio. We have more ahead. Welcome back to uh, Recovery Radio. I'm Steve Martirano. My guest on the telephone is Thomas Hager. Tom is uh, the author and the historian of medicine and science of a book called Ten Drugs, How Plants, Powders, and Pills Have Shaped the History of Medicine. Uh, one of those drugs, of course, is the is opium or opioids, and we're going to talk about that in uh, more depth in the second half of the conversation. But but now we're getting the sort of broad overview. The, these drugs have been profoundly important, and Tom mentioned in the first segment how he chose them and why he did that. Uh, Tom, with regard to the uh, sort of uh, origin story of these drugs, how many of them were more or less stumbled upon or... Um, accidentally turn out to be beneficial in one way or another? And how many others were just clearly, this is what we want to do, and that's what happened? Well, that's a good question, Steve. I I think that a lot of people, when they're thinking about drugs, you know, they're thinking about these high-tech laboratories and big pharmaceutical companies and, and people in white coats doing very rational experiments and so forth. But the history of drugs, when you go back, is actually much more interesting and weird than that. And a lot of drugs... Even now, uh, even with all these modern laboratories, a lot of drugs are discovered completely by accident uh, because we still haven't perfected the, our, our kind of rational approaches to drug development. So what we've got with drugs is this combination of scientists trying to do something very logically and, you know, with the laws of science and so forth. And then we've got this, this sort of unknown factor uh, that uh, a lot of scientists call serendipity, serendipity is a, a very long way of saying luck. And, and serendipity, it, you, when you're in a lab and you're looking for a drug, it's when you're, you're, you say you're looking for a drug for one thing, and you accidentally stumble across a drug that's good for something completely different that you weren't even looking for. You have to have your eyes open. And that serendipity happens over and over and over again in the history of drug development. Um, for example... I think that uh, the history, uh, you can point to any, any one of a number of examples. One of my favorites, though, is uh, a scientist who was looking for uh, a drug to prevent back spasms and, and uh, noticed that one of the experimental mice that they were, they were testing this drug on um, to see if it could prevent uh, back spasms, one of these mice raised its tail in the shape of an S. And that would have meant nothing to most people, but this scientist had worked on morphine before, and he knew that when you gave a mouse a shot of morphine, it raised its tail in an S-shape. And so he thought they might have stumbled across a painkiller when they were looking for something completely different. And it turned out that that drug was the first synthetic opioid. Uh, this was back in the, you know, around World War II. And uh, it opened up this whole new field of research into, into drugs. But it was it was an accident. This yeah, accidental finding happens over and over. The other thing I, I was fascinated in reading uh, about uh, from Ten Drugs is that very often the side effects of a drug that that failed didn't live up to its promise turned out to be beneficial in a completely different way. Is there an example of that you can share with us? Sure. Yeah, very important one. Uh, I mentioned Thorazine, chlorpromazine. Uh, Thorazine is the first antipsychotic. Antipsychotics are huge business now. They, they're given in enormous numbers. They're top-selling drugs uh, as well. But they were discovered by, uh, sort of by accident, by a, a, a researcher who was uh, 
uh, investigating ways to do better surgery. You know, this was this was a guy who cuts people open for a living. I was a medical surgeon. He wanted to find a way to prevent people going into shock on the operating table. So he wanted uh, to find a drug um, that would calm patients down without really uh, uh, slowing their heartbeat or or um, putting them out. You know, like a like ether would do or an anesthetic would do. So he wanted to find this drug that would um, make people a little bit loopy, but not really um, make it so that they were in more danger on the operating table. So he he asked a drug company to, uh, if they had anything they could suggest, the drug company had been working on antihistamines. Now, we all, a lot of people take antihistamines uh, because they're anti-allergy medicines and they're used for hay fever and so on. Antihistamines have a bad side effect, at least the early ones did. They, they made people drowsy. So this was a side effect they were trying to get rid of. And it took them years. They finally developed non-drowsy antihistamines. But in the meantime, they had all these failures on their shelf that did nothing but make people drowsy. They were not good antihistamines. They were almost all side effects. And this, they, the side effect was viewed as a negative. Well, it turned out the side effect was what this researcher wanted. He wanted something that made people a little bit drowsy but didn't put them out. So uh, the, the drug company pulled one of its failures off the shelf, and that failure, because of its side effect, became chlorpromazine, which is a huge, historical, uh, historically important, uh, game-changing drug for mental health uh, experts. So yeah, sometimes the side effect turns out to be the benefit. Um, and I think that before we leave side effects, I wanted to mention, Steve, that, you know, People think of drugs, and they're all, they often make the case in their minds that either a drug is good or a drug is bad. My point in the book, and, and what my studies have shown me, is that no drug is good or bad. There is no such thing as a good drug. There's no such thing as a bad drug. All drugs are both. So you don't get the benefit of a drug without side effects. Every drug on earth has side effects. And sometimes the side effects turn out to open up a field, you know, for more drugs. But those drugs have side effects. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can't get the good without the bad. And almost every drug that is considered to be, you know, a horrible threat also has a good side. You know, they, they do some good as well. And this even applies, in my view to um, pain control drugs, which do, you know, you can do wonders at controlling pain, but they have horrible side effects yeah. often. We're going to get addiction. We're going to get into that uh, uh, in more depth straight ahead. Ten Drugs, How Plants, Powders, and Pills Have Shaped the History of Medicine. Its author, Tom Hager, is our guest. We have more with Tom straight ahead. This is Recovery Radio. Stick around. Welcome back to Recovery Radio. We'll get back to our uh, our guest, Tom uh, Hager, straight ahead. But I just I do this each and every week. I want to do it again now. I'm going to give you a phone number for Retreat Behavioral Health. For any questions or comments you have about this topic today, the, the history of drugs and medicine, uh, or anything concerning substance abuse, treatment, uh, mental health, and treatment, I give you this phone number, and I say it every week. I hope you never have to use it. But if uh, you find yourself in a situation and you don't know where to turn, uh, retreat's a pretty good, uh, pretty good resource. 855-859-8808. Retreat Behavioral Health, 855-859-8808. Ten Drugs is the name of Tom Hager's book. Fascinating to look at the history of uh, 
of drugs in our civilization and many civilizations, our relationship to it, the impact they've had. And uh, Tom has been talking to us about many of those drugs in the first uh, part of the program here today. And now we're going to take a look at um, the one that I get, uh, is sort of the center of, uh, of Mr. Hager's book, and that is uh, uh, opioids. Because as, as we all know, we are in the grip of uh, an epidemic of uh, unbelievable proportions. But as it turns out, and I said this at the beginning of the program, there's nothing new under the sun. The, the, the abuse of opioids in, in widespread and damaging ways is nothing new. First of all, Tom, how long have uh, opioid-based drugs been with us? Well, that's, uh, that goes back a long way. We discovered, early humans discovered uh, opium, and raw opium is what you get out of poppy uh, seed pods. Uh, the, it's the juice out of the, the seed pot of a certain poppy plant. Humans discovered those somehow, and nobody really knows how, uh, by accident or by observation of animals who are eating these pods or how it works. But we just, we've had opium as a medicine since before history. I mean, before people started writing history down. So it goes back more than 10,000 years, and opium was enormously influential in the earliest civilizations that we have records of, early Greeks, Egyptians, uh, people in Mesopotamia. Now, almost everywhere you look, you'll find uh, opium use and worship. Uh, opium was a drug that was uh, associated with certain gods. The god of sleep and the god of death was associated with opium. Early humans knew that uh, it was easy to overdose on opium, if you if you took too much, you could kill uh, people with opium. Uh, they used it as a poison as well as a painkiller. So we've had opium forever, and that's the raw substance that really gave birth to all of the modern opioids that we have. These these uh, refinements of opium and synthetic forms of uh, painkillers. It all started uh, way back in, you know, before history. Yeah, I want to spend just a little more time in in the historical realm before we get to where opioids wind up. It's fascinating to think about that. I mean, as you say, we have no idea how they stumbled upon this. They may have observed other animals or they may have been been hurt or whatever and ate this and felt better. Um, You know, we'll never know the the definitive answer of that. But, but, But after that, we know that they began cultivating this. This isn't. This wasn't just we stumbled upon a bush. Now they started growing it. You say there were many reasons for that. Some were some were religious. Uh, how much of it was? Uh, do, what do we know about how much of that early use going forward was both medicinal as opposed to recreational? Well, the uh, you know when we say recreational now, I think it means something different than it would have meant thousands of years ago. The drugs were used ritually in in religious ceremonies and uh, to a certain extent, but they've always been important from the very start. From the first records that we've had, they've always been used in medicines. And the reason was that opium, unlike uh, many, you know, the, the fake medicines that people have tried to market through the years, opium really does kill pain. And it was the most important and most effective painkiller healers had for most of human history. So opium was, was worked into hundreds of different recipes um, for everything from the pain of childbirth to uh, the pain of, of cancer. 
it was uh, a very vital and and highly effective um, medicine for as long as we've tracked medicines. You know, I guess I, you're you're the medical or the scientific uh, historian here. I guess it's that should be no surprise since in the time frame you're talking about in the ancient world, there must have been a higher incidence of pain. Well, that is uh, impossible for me to say. I, I well, it seems uh, like it seems likely. It seems likely, doesn't it? I mean, you know, we didn't have a lot of ways to prevent some of the things. Life was harder. Um, I would guess that opioid as a painkiller became immediately apparent because there was a lot of pain in the ancient world. Yeah, well, and that that may well be true. But you know, just as important as the level of pain. Uh, how do you measure a level of pain? It seems to me there's an individual component to it. You know, some people, the, the smallest discomfort can be viewed as pain. Other people have sort of a higher pain tolerance. So uh, whether or not people in the ancient world viewed pain the same way, you know, kind of psychologically uh, or not, I, it is hard to say. Um, I do believe that life was tough uh, back then, a lot of wounds, and a lot of people died young. Um, so you'd think that that would be a more painful environment. However, now, in great part because of drugs, we live a lot longer on average than mm. people did back mm-hmm. then. So now we're, we're subject to different kinds of pains. We're subject to the pains that are associated with old age or, or, you know, older age diseases like cancer, um, say, for instance. And uh, cancer pain is a big deal now. But it was not a big deal back then. So yeah, you know, we have different mix of pain. Whether there's more or less, hard to say. Yeah, good, good point. Uh, what do we know about the? Um, how early on did did civilization, mankind, know that the drugs, while effective in fighting pain, could also be highly addictive? How soon did they recognize that? Almost as soon as people started writing about opium. And this would have been back, you know, before the birth of Christ, before the Christian era, back in ancient Greece and Rome and Egypt. Almost as soon as people started writing about these drugs, they were writing about addiction and overdose. It's just, it goes with the drugs. You know, opium and all of its, all of its many offspring, all of, the, all of the modern opioids that we have, um, they all carry the same uh, sort of burden of addiction and overdose and they always have so so even when it was raw opium uh people like you know at the age or the era of hippocrates and galen uh back in the ancient world were uh recognizing and warning uh people about overdose and addiction also they were warning people about the effect on sort of mental state that these drugs have they were talking about um, patients becoming uh, too dreamy and detached from uh, reality and so on. Uh, so this has been a problem from the very start. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. We've had centuries of warning about this, and here we are up to our yeah. eyeballs in this uh, abuse epidemic. Um, with, with regard to uh, opioids, when did they move? What's the time frame when they move into this sort of... Um, uh, uh, you know, earlier primitive state in, into an industrial product. When does that happen? Well, I think that you can point to the time when people figured out how to refine opium. Um, raw opium has a bunch of different chemicals in it. It, it has uh, a number of psychologically and pain control active ingredients 
Um, and it took a long time for scientists to sort of separate out these, these pieces that go into raw opium. And some of the, some of the uh, pieces that people will know about, uh, one is morphine, which was um, in the uh, 19th century was separated for the first time from raw opium. Morphine is an ingredient in opium, and it took them a long time to separate it out as its own thing. So morphine and the production of morphine, I think, is really when um, this became less of a kind of an herbalist um, mm -hmm. a profession oversight in more of a modern industry. The production of morphine, for instance, was uh, perfected by a company in Germany called Merck, and Merck is still a huge player in the pharmaceutical industry, Merck, Merck Pharmaceuticals, but their company really got rolling uh, by learning how to make morphine. Morphine is when the story turns from early history, I think, into modern history. And that happened around, uh, you know, in the 1840s. Yeah, the American Civil War was a real driver of the use of opi uh, morphine, correct? Yeah. Morphine is a very effective painkiller, and it, had, um, it came along, the drug came along right at the same time that people had figured out how to use syringes to uh, shoot drugs. So uh, morphine was a perfect syringe drug um, and because it could immediately turn agony of, say, a war wound. And you mentioned Civil War. Civil War, uh, American doctors used morphine all over the place. It became a, a huge um, and important part of every doctor's practice during the Civil War. You could uh, shoot a, a wounded veteran, a wounded soldier, um, with morphine, and their agony would turn very quickly into uh, something calmer. Their pain was eased, and uh, as I think I, I pointed out in the book, uh, during the Civil War, uh, patriotic citizens would grow opium poppies in their gardens, you know, both in the North and the South, and, it became, and that was harvested and processed into morphine for the troops, and it was viewed as a patriotic gesture. Uh, by citizens, so uh, morphine morphine became a very very uh, well known painkiller. It also caused a wave of addiction because these soldiers became addicted to morphine, and they called it the army disease uh, back then. Or morphinism, morphinism, morphine addiction became the first real um, opiate uh, opioid. Uh, epidemic of its day, and it reached a peak in the 1880s. It's remarkable. Once again, we're reminded nothing new under the sun. We hear and have heard for a while now returning veterans from the Middle East, uh, the wars in the Middle East of the last 20 years, um, have unfortunately often become addicted to prescription opioids because of their um, military experience. So again, um, another reminder we're, we're, we always seem to we where we are. Tom Hager is our guest. Tom is the author of Ten Drugs: How Plants, Powders, Pills have sh and uh, uh, Powders and Pills have shaped the history of medicine. We have more with Tom. Don't go away. This is Recovery Radio. Hi, welcome back to Recovery Radio. Tom Hager has been a great guest. We have a little more time with Tom. Tom is the author of uh, he's a historian of medicine and science. He's the author of Ten Drugs: How Plants. Powders and pills have shaped the history of medicine. He's taken us up through uh, ancient times to opioids now, and we know the situation there with us. T uh, Tom, uh, 
just before the break there, you mentioned that uh, it was the uh, Civil War, uh, one of the big drivers of the use of morphine and uh, to ease pain during that conflict, and that as a result of that, there was a, a, a tremendous spike in addiction. What was the attitude of uh, 19th century people about folks who had become dependent upon and, and perhaps were even abusing morphine? Did they view it almost immediately as a character flaw, or did they see that there might be a medical dynamic going on here? One of the most interesting things I found while researching the book was how different attitudes were uh, toward morphine addicts, say, in the 1880s, 1890s, versus um, the way that we uh, came to view addiction after World War II and in more, more recent times. In back then, when uh, a soldier uh, became addicted to morphine uh, because they'd, they'd been treated for pain in the war, or when a, uh, actually morphine addiction was actually a woman's disease more than a men's disease uh, back in those days because a lot of women were treated with morphine uh, for the pain of childbirth or uh, uh, the, uh, for what they called hysteria back then, which was almost any psychological problem a woman had. Often they got treated with morphine and they became addicted. Morphinism in, the, in this first wave of, of real addiction in the United States in the 1880s and 1890s was associated with women who were generally middle class or upper, upper class women who had been treated for pain, became addicts, and kept a needle and morphine, which was available for sale in any drugstore. You could buy morphine without a prescription anywhere in the United States. Um, it was so available and so easy to use that morphinism became like a quiet habit for a lot of women. Uh, laudanum uh, was a liquid form of opium that was also used, but morphine became the big drug because it was uh, much more strong, uh, much stronger, more concentrated. So it was the kind of, um, it was viewed genteely in those mm -hmm. days. The addicts were not lower class people, they were upper and middle class people. It was viewed as a as sort of a failure of will, if you, if you will, more than a moral failing. In other words, someone became addicted through medical use, initially, often, and then they kept their habit going because it kept them uh, calm, and it, it, well, they were addicts. Um, and uh, as long as it was done privately, in their own room, and uh, often by buying morphine legally, which was easy to do, uh, it was not viewed the same way that we view it now. There were not the legal consequences that we have now. It was not viewed as criminal activity. It was not viewed as a moral failing so much as just an unfortunate weakness that resulted from medical treatment. So uh, attitudes were very different. Mm. Is it true, uh, and I know it is because it's in your book, that uh, you could buy uh, heroin through the Sears catalog? Well, heroin came a little later. Heroin was the next step beyond morphine. Uh, heroin was an attempt to get people off of morphine. It was an attempt to fight morphine addiction. It was a, it was a chemical variation on morphine. So heroin came along uh, in the 1890s, around 1900, and uh, was very popular. It was marketed by uh, the, the Bayer drug company from Germany, makers of Bayer aspirin. And, and uh, a lot of people took uh, heroin to, to soothe their coughs and sore throats. Uh, back in those days for a few years. Anyway, it was available uh, widely, and, and it was you could buy um, a couple of vials of heroin and a syringe, 
in a handsome carrying case from the Sears <laughs> Roebuck catalog. <laughs> well, no wonder they were so they got so they got so big. Um, I, I know we're running we're running out of time here now. I just want to get us to the present day. Um, we don't have enough time to talk about big pharma and their role in all this. I know that you don't indict anybody here. You make the point in your book very clearly that uh, you know the pharmaceutical companies have, have been both good and bad stewards of this stuff, right? Well, I believe that pharmaceutical companies are in business to make money. And it's, it's that simple. And that, to me, is neither good nor bad. That's simply what a corporation does. So uh, they, w- they do things that they need to do to give shareholders money for their investments, whatever. And so, uh, you know, drug companies are great at discovering new drugs. They're also great at marketing and selling them. And so, they, you know, they do what they do. They're neither good nor bad. They just are corporations. And well, I would add, that, and also it'll show you, it'll show you how the role that government and regulation has in all this. Finally, tell me about fentanyl. Yes, fentanyl is uh, is sort of the opens up a more recent stage of development. These opioids go through these stages of development. Morphine uh, from opium is one stage, and heroin from morphine is another stage. People keep looking as, as the downside, the, the negative sides, the addiction, the overdoses become more and more uh, important and grow as they were growing in the 1890s and around 1900. You know, uh, scientists keep looking for this magic drug that's going to solve the whole problem. What everybody wants to find is this painkiller that's just as good as opiates and opioids. Some painkiller that's really powerful but is not addictive. That's what everybody's looking for. We're still looking for that. And we were looking for it in 1900. Yeah. So um, part of that search led to the development of painkillers that were not based on opium, but were based on something completely different. Fentanyl was one of the first of those kind of drugs. Showed up in the 1950s, was 100 times more powerful than morphine, and became a very important part of uh, medical practice. Well, we don't have. We we are out of time. The book is entitled Ten Drugs: How Plants, Powders, and Pills Have Shaped the History of Medicine." Its author, Tom Hager, has been our guest. Tom, can we get you back again? Oh, I'd be happy anytime, Steve. Terrific, Tom Hager. Uh, look for the book where wherever books are sold. It's it's a dandy read. Uh, and enjoy the rest of um, your day and week. And look for Recovery Radio straight ahead. Bye bye. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management.